0: Good morning. We're on lesson 27 in our study of the uh, book of Hebrews. I think what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to put up uh, my options for titles and let you vote on them because they uh, they, they keep changing. I keep adding to them. Uh, I had one being heavenly minded for our earthly good, and then there was uh, where there's... Life and I scratched that out and put in death, there's hope. And uh, the last one that came to mind was Faith's Magnum Opus, which I think you see uh, illustrated and declared in our text in Hebrews chapter 11. What is interesting to me is uh, that uh, in all the years in which I have done funerals, and I think all of you know, Funerals are one of my favorite things to do, not because people die, but because that's where the gospel is is most crucial to give people hope in the face of death. But of all the funerals that I've done and of all the texts that I've used for funerals, I've never used Hebrews chapter 11, and in particular verses 13 through 16. So I'm warning you, the next one of you to die... (laughs) This is probably going to be the text. And you can just hear it, and you'll get a little advanced sample of of what that is about. But as I was thinking about this particular text and and these great verses, by the way, you will notice I cheated. I, I had assigned in the study guide, verses 13 through 16, and I agonized about what to do with verses 17 through 22. And, and the reason for that is that Hebrews 11, 13, 13 through 16 sets out the principles, but it's verses 17 through 22 which become the examples of that. And, and so the question is whether you go into those sections more deeply or whether you try to deal with that section together, and I've opted in the last-minute way, to go ahead and and put verses 17 through 22 uh, in with this message because I think they do illustrate the truths that the author is trying to set before us. But as I was thinking about this particular text and its lessons, its application for the original readers, the original Hebrews who are going to receive this epistle, I I went back and I did a little reviewing of, of Israel's history. Now, There is the assumption that I am making that Hebrews is written before the fall of Jerusalem, before 70 A.D. That's not one that's particularly rare or unique, but that is the assumption with which I approach the book. When you think through the life of our Lord Jesus and when you think through the high level of messianic expectation you realize that the Jews of that time, and I'm including in those among that category, the disciples themselves, they were very much looking for Jesus to do something with respect to his kingdom now, not, not later, but now. Is it now that you are going to establish the kingdom? That's the question they kept asking. Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was right on when he spoke about Jesus and his coming in judgment. But John himself spoke more about the second coming of our Lord, in my opinion, than he did of the first coming. Now, he did say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he speaks about Jesus who's going to come in judgment and judge his enemies and and when you think about john now sitting there in the cell after he's been arrested before he has his head cut off he's sitting there in the cell and he's saying to himself now i've been telling him jesus is coming and boy is he mad and and here's jesus and he's going around talking about i have a kingdom but my kingdom is not of this world and and uh, and it looks like jesus isn't going to throw those rascals from rome out and, and Jesus isn't going to come and rescue me out of this jail. And so he begins to say, have I got this right or not? And that's why he sends the messengers to Jesus and says, you know, are you the one that, that I'm supposed to be telling about? Uh, you know, or have I got this wrong? Because he expected Jesus to do something right then. The disciples were really not that different. And I think when Peter pulls out his sword in defense of our Lord, what he's saying is bring it on. This is going to get this system going and we're going to get that kingdom here now. Very much interested in what was going to happen. So when Jesus began to speak to his disciples, especially as we see it in John, uh, chapters 13 through uh, 17, and he's saying, uh-uh, you can't come with me, they're saying, what is this? What is this about this delay and, and he's not going to be here and wh- what does this mean? And, of course, they didn't really understand that until after his resurrection. But even after his resurrection, there was a sense of anticipation that our Lord Jesus was going to come soon. And here you are, in for those who were in Jerusalem, or when Jerusalem at least still existed and is intact, you have this sense that surely he is going to come to Jerusalem. Surely he is going to come and make his appearance at the temple And yet things are beginning to fall apart. And you see this growing animosity and friction between Jerusalem and the Jews and Rome. All of which is going to explode and Rome is going to have had it with these Jewish rebels and they're going to come and overturn the city and, and, and besiege it and, and crucify many, many uh, Jewish people and finally decimate that city. So that all of these things in which the Jews had sort of placed their, their, their hope, it will be now, they thought. And, and it will be here, they thought. And so when they begin to see that the here and now is about to change dramatically, they're saying, what do we do about that? Now, it seems to me as well that there was an appeal that was coming from within Judaism, an appeal for Jews to patriotically unite and, and revolt against Rome and so on. And so I think the church, the believers, felt a great deal of pressure. But they also saw the clouds beginning to form uh, in the horizon, and they said, this doesn't bode well. It doesn't bode well for those who think Jesus is coming here and he's coming soon. It doesn't bode well, and I think that was part of the issue. And this text, in my opinion, really directly addresses that issue because it's talking about these Old Testament saints. All of them, the author says twice, all of them were people who had faith, and they had faith that what Jesus was going to do, he was going to do, by and large, after they died. Their faith was a faith that went beyond death. So this is a really critical text, in my opinion. Now, let's look at what I call the expanding definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 1 through 10, you have, as it were, the foundation for faith, and that is the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you also have the need, the necessity of faith in order to persevere, in order to endure as they were exhorted to do. And so in these verses, we see an expanding definition of what faith is. In verses 1 and 2, you see faith as being certain of those things for which we hope and those things which we cannot see. And in verse 2 he says, it is this kind of faith which finds favor and approval from God. Faith is the basis for God's approval. And faith looks at those things which are future, they are our hope, but they are not yet seen. And believe me, when you're living in Israel at the times they were, they weren't seen, as it were, on the immediate horizon. Then verse 3, he says, uh, regarding creation, faith is evident with regard to creation. It is certain about the origin of this universe, where it has come from, timely in light of the uh, the series that will be coming up shortly uh, on evolution. Then in verses 4 and 5, you have the examples of faith, that is, the example of Abel and of Enoch. In verse 6, he moves to another level of definition of faith, and he says, faith is being certain that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews is urging believers to diligently seek after God. Faith believes God is there. Faith believes that God is the rewarder of those who will press Toward him who will draw near. He is there. He is the rewarder. And that's where the examples then come in verses 7 through 12 of both Noah and Abraham. Then in verses 13 through 16, which is really the core of our text, it says, Faith trusts in God to reward after death. Up to this point, it's saying faith believes there is God. Faith believes that God will reward but now what he does is expand it to when are those rewards going to come? Will those come now? Will they come immediately? Or will they come later? Faith, he says, is the belief that God will bring about the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of his promises after our death. Not before, not immediate, not now necessarily but certainly for these saints, all of them, after their death. So then he gives us the example of the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham. You'll notice he's still following a chronological scheme as he lays out these people. Abel, Enoch, and then he goes down through Abraham and the patriarchs, and next he will move to Moses. So he's following that chronological scheme in the development of his argument. Now, I'm going to focus on verse 13, and I'm going to paraphrase it and understand, this is not a translation. This is not a translation, but for me, sometimes it is necessary to take a verse and to put it in my own words to really get my mental arms around it. And it is also interesting to me that there are a couple of particulars about this verse that until you try to paraphrase it, they don't really pop out at you. So here's my paraphrase for what it's worth. These all died in a manner that is consistent with faith. Now, very interesting to me, as I looked at all the translations, they all virtually uh, translated, these all died in faith. That is not really what the text says. Uh, there is, there is a preposition that, that can mean that, and there is the the repeated expression, by faith. But this is the word that is used, which means according to. and And it was interesting to me, in the Net Bible, in the margin, not in the text, but in the margin, they said, literally, according to. That's what the word is. Now, what's the difference? Well, it's one thing to say people died in faith in the sense that they died as a believer. That's a good thing. But it's another thing to say that that person died in a way that is consistent with their faith. There are some things, when you look at the, at the end of David's life, when you look at the end of Solomon's life, when you look at the end of some other folks' lives, you have to say to yourself, you know, it isn't one of those happily ever after kind of endings about, you know, the way they lived. But what he's saying is something like this. When when someone, for instance, uh, gives from their wealth... Remember, it talks about God who gives... uh He doesn't say out of his riches. He says God who gives according to his riches. There is a world of difference. You can be rich and reach in and take a dime and you can give 10 cents out of your riches. But if you give according to your riches, folks you're going to dig deep in that wallet. And this is the point that I think the author is making. These saints all died. They not only lived, they died in a way that was compatible with and entirely consistent with the faith that they had in God and the definition of faith that he's been laying out. I want to underscore, circle, whatever you have to do with that word all. All. All of them, all of these examples he's given. And you could say, you know, you could say, well, Enoch didn't die. Okay, okay. well, that's fine. But but I think we understand he's talking about the patriarchs. But he's also talking about everybody that he's going to mention as he goes down through chapter 11, because look at what it says in verse 39. And all of these, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So. He is saying this is the pattern. This is the pattern for those who are people of faith. They ought to live and they ought to die in a way that is consistent with that faith. That is, true faith, living faith must take death into account. It must come to terms with death and it must go beyond the grave if it is genuine faith because the rewards, as he says, have not been experienced the promises have not been experienced in their lifetime. Now, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, when it talks about Abraham, it says that God had received, or that, I'm sorry, that Abraham had received the promises. And here's the way I would explain that. It seemed that he had in the sense that the promise focused on his son, Isaac, right? Right? promise, focused on his son. These blessings are going to take place through Isaac. And so from Abraham's point of view, when he's tested, he says, the answer to all my prayers, the key to all of my hopes is in this boy. (laughs) But the point is, the ultimate fulfillment of those things isn't Isaac. It is Isaac's offspring, and that will be our Lord Jesus Christ. So he seems to have received all of them. He receives, you might say, the down payment of the blessings. But there are other blessings in the future, which is where his eyes are fixed. And that is why he will obey God by sacrificing his son. Okay. These all died in a manner that is consistent with faith. That is to say, they trusted in God without receiving the ultimate fulfillment of his promises. They trusted in God and they died without realizing everything that God had promised to give. They died without a present fulfillment in their life in a total way. By faith... They saw these uh, promised blessings in the distant future. That is, they saw them from afar. They saw them by faith, these things, this hope which he describes that faith fixes on and is certain of, they saw in the future, beyond their death, and they welcomed them. That is, they embraced them. These are my blessings. These are mine, but they're in the distance after my death. In this way, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in this world. They saw that once they looked beyond the grave for the fulfillment of their hopes and their expectations, that gave them a different perspective and a different relationship to the present, to this world, which is crucial for those Hebrews, and in my opinion, is crucial for us as well. Now, take a look at what I call the further explanation of verse 13 that comes in verses 14 through 16. First of all, he says, they are speaking of themselves as strangers and pilgrims. And this indicates that they are seeking a homeland. Now, you have to really catch this. And I, I didn't see it until I looked at my paraphrase and laid it off Against the text itself, but look at uh, look at the let me just read you this text verses thirteen through sixteen uh, from the net Bible. These all died in or according to faith, without receiving the things promised, but they saw them at a distance and welcomed them and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. Verse fourteen those who speak, not who spoke, those who speak in such a way make it clear that they are seeking, not did seek, are seeking a homeland. In fact, if they had been thinking of the land that they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they aspire, present tense, not did aspire, they do aspire to a better land. Now, here's the thing that the author is saying that may sound like a subtlety, but it is critical, He is saying they didn't receive the blessings before they died. They looked for the blessings by faith after they died, but they are still hoping. In other words, he's saying they aren't really dead. They're alive. Now, go back with you, with, with me in your mind to Matthew chapter 22. Here's the trick question that's going to be put to the Lord Jesus. You know, whose wife is she going to be? This woman, uh, she was married to this man, and the husband died, and, and so the, the next brother took her, and then he died, the next brother, and, you know, seven brothers with one wife. In heaven, whose wife will she be? And, of course, Jesus says, well, number one, <laughs> you, he didn't say this, I'll paraphrase, you turkeys, you don't believe in resurrection anyway. Pharisees didn't believe in resurrection, so who's talking about who gets who after, after you're raised? They don't believe in it. But then he says, you don't really understand what resurrection means. And then he quotes. He says in verse 31 of Matthew 22, Now as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Isaac and the God of of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living first funeral I ever did, when I went to visit this woman uh, in, in in the hospital, this is the verse that she asked me about. What does that verse mean? She was dying, and she knew that Jesus was saying something that was really important, and that is, those who die in faith are not really dead at all. That's why Jesus could say, he's not dead, he's only sleeping, because They were going to be raised from the dead. So their hopes are still real, and they are still looking for them. And that's what he says down in verses 39 and 40. The reason why they didn't get them is because they're going to get them when we get them. We're going to get them together. So they're still waiting, but we're going to enter into those blessings together. That's why they weren't given to them at that moment. So they are seeking a homeland. If you call yourself a pilgrim, what you're saying is, this world is not my home. But the next line says, I'm just a passing through. Because why? Because heaven's my home. That's where I'm going. If you're a pilgrim here, you're a citizen somewhere else. So he's saying, these people speaking in this way are indicating they do have a homeland. Now he goes on to clarify that. He says, that homeland isn't their fatherland in the sense of the place from which they came. It's some other place. He says, they could have gone back to the place from which they came. I would add parenthetically, the people who didn't have faith wanted to go back. Remember, that's what the Israelites said. Let's get rid of this Moses and this whole thing and let's go on back to Egypt. That was home to them. No wonder they didn't enter the land. That wasn't home to them. Their rest was somewhere else. So those who seek a homeland are not seeking the place from which they came. Rather, he says in verse 16, the homeland they seek is a better place. It's a heavenly place. Their home is heaven, beyond death, beyond the grave. And because of this, he says, God is not ashamed to be called their God since he has prepared a heavenly city for them. Now, this is really laying out pretty much what has already been said of Abraham, that he lived in the land of promise as a stranger and a pilgrim, but that he looked for the city, the city whose architect and builder is God. It wasn't any earthly city. It wasn't Jerusalem, as great as that city was. It was the city that God is preparing. By the way, doesn't that remind you of John 14, where Jesus is saying, I have gone and I'm going to prepare a place for you? You trust in me? That's what he's talking about. Okay. Now, examples of dying faith. If you will forgive me, and I don't often uh, do this, but I think I want to in this regard. He is following a chronological pattern May, may I take the second-rate examples of faith first and then and then end with the grand finale, uh, the magnum opus, as it were, of this, uh, Isaac. It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Now, this is another example, I believe, of how we see God looking at faith and that faith is not perfect, but the one in whom they trust is perfect. And that's why when we saw the, 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 the skeletons in the patriarchal closet uh, that we were talking about the last time, there's, there's skeletons in these closets too. When I read about Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau, I remember that story. He's trying to hustle up the blessings and bless Esau instead of Jacob, if you remember, and whatever. The point the author's making, however, is this. He understood that the blessings would be fulfilled after his death. That's why he hurried to do it. He thought, he knew he had one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, and he better hurry up and do it. And he was right. He had at least that much faith. He believed that God's blessings that were promised to Abraham would be passed down to others after his death. And for that, we would include him in the hall of faith. Then there's the blessing of Jacob that's given to us in verse 21. Now remember that that here the author is referring to the blessing that Jacob gives to the sons of Joseph two sons. Now in doing that he is giving Joseph the double portion remember Reuben had gone up and taken his father's couch so to speak and and uh, and because of that he had lost his preeminence his his rights of the firstborn and, and, uh, so he cannot have that place. And it is though Jacob is trying to pass that on to, uh, his, the sons of Joseph. And you can understand Joseph was the favorite son. Joseph is the son who has now become the deliverer. But the point is not all of that because he will pronounce the blessings later on in, in that chapter. Uh, and he will speak about the scepter not departing from Judah. But my point is, he too recognized he is, he is, folks, he is leaning on his staff. This boy is propped up and, and given his last words and he's speaking about God's blessings being poured out after his death. That I think is the point that the author is, is emphasizing. And, and then Joseph. Joseph, when he, uh, when he is dying, he speaks of, of, of the Exodus that is going to take place of the Israelites out of uh, Egypt and into the promised land, and he speaks about his burial and his bones being placed in that land. He expects as well that God's promised blessings are coming about after his death. So here's three examples, not entirely flawless examples, as we would expect from any human being, but examples of people who trusted God, who believed his blessings would come and believed they would come after their death. They believed in God even though they had not received those blessings blessings in their lifetime. That brings us to Abraham in verses 17 through 19, who is chronologically first in order. But you've got to say, is he not the paragon of faith? I mean, we look at him as the father of faith, but it seems to me this example is just, is just prime with what with the essence of his faith, and you don't see the flaws that you do here. We talked about Abraham before verse thirteen, and and his his kind of slow getting into the land, and and certainly a little uh, faltering with respect to the promise of the seed by the way he passed off his wife as his sister and all of that. But when you get to this, I think you see Abraham at his finest. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And when you look at that account, it is interesting because I tried to point out that he was not hasty in getting from Ur of the Chaldees down to Canaan. Remember, there was the sojourn in Haran and whatever. That was kind of a slow, slow movement in the right direction. But the text is pretty clear when you read it in Genesis. God says to him, take your son and offer him up. And it says early the next morning. Now, I'm not going to tell you he had a good night's sleep. We all know better than that. And I'm not going to tell you there wasn't some wrestling, but my point is it didn't take him years to get around to doing what God said. Here is a man who, because he has seen God's faithful work in his life, says, I'm going to obey God. And he does it on the basis of who God is, A, and on the basis of reasoning. And and I think this is a critical element. It would have been one thing for God to say, Abraham, I want you to go through this, the motions of going up and offering up your sacrifice, but don't worry. I won't let anything happen. You know, I mean, that really isn't a test of faith. But when he says to him, I want you to offer up your son, your only son, remember now Ishmael has been sent off, given his inheritance. He's not in the picture. He's got one shot. And God has said, this boy is it. Take that son and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham had to put these things, and he's looking at, at, the, at the promises that God has said that come about only through Isaac, and he looks at the command of God, and he reasons rightly. Who is God? God is the one who said to Sarah and myself, even though you're as good as dead, so far as childbearing is concerned, you're going to have a son. And he waited 25 years to fulfill that promise. But God took us as good as dead and gave us life. This boy is testimony to the resurrection power of God, life in the midst of death. And he extrapolates that and he reasons and says, if the God who commands me to sacrifice this boy is the God who says the blessings come through this boy, then he's going to do a resurrection number again. That's his logic. He believed that God would actually let him sacrifice the son. But that God would raise him from the dead because that was the only way those promises could be fulfilled. Just like our Lord Jesus. Unless our Lord had been raised from the dead, the promises would not have been fulfilled. That's why Peter says in Acts chapter 2, it had to happen. It had to happen. And with God, who's surprised? That's the kind of God he is. So his whole point is, Abraham is a man who trusted God beyond death. And because of that, of course, he was approved of God for his faith. And he did so by logic. A lot of times our logic will get us in trouble. But there are times, friends, when we need to do a little logical thinking about God. If we know who God is, and we know what God's promises are, and we find ourselves in circumstances which seem inconsistent with those promises, it's time for a little reasoning. And that reasoning needs to be based on the faithfulness of God, his absolute power, and the fact that what he says will happen. I think, by the way, that we're getting to one of those times. Our economy was rushed to the hospital, and it was spent some time in the emergency room, And then uh, it's now in intensive care. And if we look at all the signs, we got to say, whoa, we better hope for something beyond economic death because we've got a God whose promises somehow don't vacillate depending on what the stock market says for the day. Okay, so what does that say to us? Well, for the readers of that day, it seems to me what it says is, if your eyes are fixed too much on Jerusalem, if your eyes are fixed too much on the present day, and you are inclined to think somehow I must jump into this, this political movement that is trying to rally Jews together against Rome to somehow forcibly bring about this kingdom, it's saying, look at your ancestry. Look at the history of your forefathers. Every one of them, all of them. Not one or two had faith that went beyond the grave. Every single one of them had faith in God that believed God's promises were going to be fulfilled even at the point of death when they had not yet been. Why? Because God is one who will fulfill it and it's in the distance. We must see it in the distance and we must believe it. And we don't look at current earthly circumstances to be affirmed that those things are going to be true. So these believers need to cling to God by faith, trust in him to bring about his kingdom in his time. And if Jerusalem gets sacked and the temple gets destroyed, it doesn't matter. But you see, for them, they had almost come to idolize the temple. You remember when Stephen is criticized and when Paul is attacked and Jesus as well, he speaks against the temple the temple was somehow that that little genie bottle that you could rub and it meant god wouldn't let anything happen as long as it's here well it did happen it isn't here and the reality is we know from revelation there will be a new jerusalem it's coming down from heaven that's the city that god is building and will bring about what does it say to us well we live in a society that fixes on the uh, on the present does it not? You know, the old saying, you know, you only go around once, you got to grab all the gusto you can get. What it's saying is you only have now. And it's saying, live out the now and all of its pleasures and forget the future. Now, there's a there's a sort of a American Express version of that, which says, pull out the plastic. You deserve now all the enjoyments and pleasures of life and worry about what that means in the future. Our government now finds itself on on the verge of disaster economically. And what does it say? We need to spend more money. That's what we need to do, spend more money. That's going to fix it. What it's saying is forget about the future and focus on the present and, in effect, borrow against the future as you live in the present. And what this text says is, folks, this stuff is passing You know, if our hope has been in the riches of this world, then so we see them go up a little faster in flames. What difference does it make? It was never our hope. That's what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Tell people who have riches, don't trust in them. Trust in God. Don't trust in now. Trust in then. You're pilgrims now. That changes the way you look at life. People are not going to think kindly of you. They're going to think you're strange. You are or you should be, we are. We're a strange bunch to the world that looks at us because our home is not here. We ought to dress differently. We ought to talk differently. We ought to think differently. We ought to spend our money differently because we are different. Heaven is our home. That is our goal, and we trust in God to give us that. There are many uh, professing believers who really tout the same message of the here and now rather than the future. If you really had enough faith, you wouldn't suffer now. You wouldn't be sick now. You wouldn't be poor now. Just, just enough faith. And if you don't have healing and wealth and fame and all the things that they offer, then the problem's with you. The problem's with you and the problem's with your faith. Now, I ask you, does that view encourage perseverance? Does that view of life that says all of those blessings ought to be yours now, forget about the future, all those blessings ought to be yours, and they would be if you had enough faith, as opposed to what our writer is saying, and that is those blessings come then, then, in terms of the ultimate fulfillment. Will there be peace? Will there be joy? Absolutely. But will the material blessings be there? Al Angel uh, came up to me and and said, no, it was Gordon Graham talking about Psalm 73. Al read that text. But I want to encourage you. it It didn't occur to me until this morning as I was sitting in worship and thinking, Psalm 73 is an introduction, Old Testament introduction to Hebrews. Think about it. What is Asaph saying? He's saying, poor me. God promised to bless me. And in his mind, he says, now, now. But he says, look, look at what these guys, look at the church parking lot. Look at what these guys are driving. Look at me. I'm driving a moped and, and, and they're driving a Mercedes. It isn't right. It isn't fair. And, and he says, you know, I'm shaking my fist in God's face. And then he says, all of a sudden I started looking from an eternal perspective and I realized whatever the wicked have now, they have for a short time. But what the, what the psalmist realizes is, God is near to me. He is near to me in my adversity. I have him now and I will have him for all eternity. And therefore, the ultimate blessing is the nearness of God. That's what heaven is, folks. Heaven isn't just getting to the gold standard where you can pick it up off the streets. Heaven is being in the presence of God. And gold becomes so useless, you walk on it and spit on it. It's just the sidewalk in heaven. What's there is the nearness of our God. He has sought us out. And Hebrews is simply explaining in detail what Psalm 73 speaks about in general terms. We ought not to have our hope fixed on the present. We ought not to have our hope fixed on the pleasures of this world, as he's going to talk about with Moses. We ought to have our hope fixed on Him. And we ought to be looking to Him to fulfill His blessings and to expect that as strangers and pilgrims, life may not go as well for us now as it does for others. That's what a stranger and a pilgrim expects. There is no entitlement for strangers and pilgrims. But that's what he says we ought to do. I know that my time is running out, but I cannot end without doing this. I called Marge Harmon last night because I remembered the funeral that I had done for her husband, Edwin. And I want to use this as an illustration of how someone takes their death and dies according to faith in a way that makes a significant impact on other people. I want to read you a section uh, of Ed's living will. By the way, seven years tomorrow, he will have passed away. This is, the, this is the will that he had, his living will, that he handed to his physicians. It's not all of it, but listen to these words. To the person who makes the decision to terminate medical treatment, or who may be required to disconnect any life support system, I wish to assure you that you are not taking my life, and I do not want you to feel any guilt or remorse. No man or group of men can take my life against the Lord's will. My God can and will preserve my life independent of the life support system if he should choose to do so. I choose to live only if the Lord has a purpose for my life and restores my life and strength sufficiently to serve his purposes, and in such event, I shall rise up and leave this bed of affliction. My prayer is that God will bless you for serving me. In the event that there are any who read this instruction that are concerned about their own inevitable death and eternal destiny in heaven or hell, I recommend consideration of the scripture verses, Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23, John 3.16, and Ephesians 2.8.9. My reason for choosing to die under these circumstances rather than to struggle for sure existence in life is because I have a deep abiding faith in the ability and promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to preserve and transport me to a place that he has lovingly prepared for me. John 14, 1 through 6. Death is not final, nor to be feared. I am looking forward with great joy to meeting the great God and my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and many of my family and friends. For a Christian, this decision is both logical and wise my challenge to you is this. Think about ways in which the preparation for your death may have that witness. Isn't that what this writer is saying? The way in which the men and women of faith faced death, set them apart as examples of faith and a witness to a world that desperately needs it. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for uh, Edwin Hannon and for his faith and the way in which he exhibited it in the face of death. Will you help us as, as believers to uh, to look beyond this life, present pleasures, present prosperity, to the real hope and joy and glory that waits, and that is to be in your presence, to draw near to you forever. Father, I pray for any who might be here in the hearing of my voice this morning who are not really sure about where they will go when they die. Help them to understand what this writer has said in chapter 2, that the Lord Jesus came and took on death and was the victor over it so that we would no longer fear death, that is, those who have trusted in the death of the Lord Jesus in their place. I pray that they might trust in the Savior, that they might have their hope fixed in heaven and the joy that comes from knowing their sins are forgiven and their future is secure. Help us, Father, with these truths to persevere in faith, knowing that difficult days may lie ahead, but beyond the grave, perhaps for us, lies the promise of that city that You have built for us. In Jesus' name, amen.